If I was to mention the word cup, C-U-P, in case you've not got my accent, cup, I wonder what kind of different cups we would think about. I thought about it a little bit. I'm not, I'm not a mega sports fan, but I understand a little bit about sport. And we can think of the FA Cup, we can think of the World Cup, we can think of the Rugby World Cup, and uh, we can think of uh, other cups to do with other sports. I've run out. <laughs> the Ashes. The Ashes. Of course, those of us that live this side of the North Border, the Kolkata Cup, which we're determined to try to keep or get back when we've lost it and everything else. But cups, uh, you know, they're, they're used in so many different ways. But, you know, we, we, we think of um, uh, the vessel of the cup that we drink from. And isn't it strange if somebody will come round to our house and will say, would you like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee? And how many of us actually give it in a mug? <laughs> We've offered a cup, but we give it in a mug. But I prefer a mug. You get more in it. <laughs> um, I can remember, you know, when you think about cups and mugs to drink from, I wonder what has been uh, the dirtiest or the cleanest cup or mug you've ever drunk from. I remember when I was, it would have been before Elaine and myself were married, so we're going back before 1983, and we went to visit uh, a lady in the church in Hereford, where we were living then, and she was already well into her 90s, and she started to relate some stories to us, and she had been a nurse right back in the early days. So we are going back a long time ago, probably in the late 10s, 20s and 19s, whatever. And uh, she was, whatever, I don't before the NHS or whatever her job title would have been, she used to have to travel around to different places, to homes and that, a bit like a health visitor, district nurse or whatever. And she related this story to us that on her journeys, she had to visit some um, gypsy families. And the gypsy families were these with these old-fashioned, you know, with the cartwheels, those kind of caravans. And she'd done whatever she had to do with this family, and they'd asked her if she would like a drink of tea. So, politely, she said, yes, okay, she would have a drink of tea, and she stayed with them to have this drink of tea. And she watched them getting everything ready, and she couldn't see the cups, she couldn't see the mugs. And she wondered what on earth she was going to have this uh, drink of tea in until the journey started with the teapot. And the teapot was handed from one to the other and they all drank from the spank. She had already agreed that she was going to have a drink of tea. So she felt obliged. I guess she thought the scripture, nothing will harm you. <laughs> and so she took a drink from that tea. Just a, a few years ago, back in Rill, I befriended some travellers, the ones that, you know, they come to your local town and they set up camp and then suddenly the authorities move them on and they move from one place to the other. Uh, and they arrived and I befriended them. I don't know what happened for me to befriend them. I befriended them uh, and I discovered that a couple of these travellers were, were born-again believers. They were Christians. And so I, I went into the caravan, spent some time with them, prayed with them, we had some fellowship together, and then they were shifted and moved to somewhere else. I found out where they were gone, and I went and had fellowship with them again, spent time in prayer with them. Then they were shifted again, and I think it might have been Nicola who might even have come with me, or one of my daughters came with me one of the times to the caravan. Uh, and with the Irish accent, they asked me, do you want a cup of tea? So what? I had a cup of tea. But the cup 
that I was given on the mug that I was given was probably one of the most pristine and cleanest cups that I've ever drunk a cup of tea from because the caravan was immaculate, spotless. It was absolutely immaculate. When I was involved in my job as in the garages and for a period of time I used to travel around and I can remember being offered cups of tea in my first early days going around these different garages around Herefordshire and um, Powys and Breckenshire, Gwent uh, and I soon got to learn which garages I would say no <laughs> and which garages I would say yes because I had a cup of tea at this one place and I'm telling you, I think that everybody that worked in the garage must have drunk from this cup and the cup had never been washed and when it was handed to me, I was slyly having a look around to see if I could find at least some clean part of the cup that I could have my cup of tea from. Again, politely, I drank it and gulped it down. <laughs> but cups. But I want to talk about a cup to get today that is like a cup, like no other cup. A cup that was filled with things that no other cup we could talk about has ever been filled with and ever be filled with. A cup that was filled with things that were dirtier than anything else that you and I may ever have drunk from. But I want to say first of all that we thank God that Jesus prayed a prayer before he began to drink from the cup. We're going to go to Luke 22, and I'm going to read verses 39 to 46, but my verse is just verse 42. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that ye may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Somewhere I'm sharing this morning, you would have heard me share before, not too long ago, I was speaking from Mark chapter 14, and so there's an overlap in some of the thoughts, and some of the thoughts I've even used in devotions over the last two years, and the, the theme which I'm going to share from this morning, and again next Sunday evening, is with this as the title, From Cup to Crown, From Torment to Triumph, and From Victim to Victor. And so this morning we're going to look at the cup. As I've said, it's a cup like no other cup, filled with things that no other cup previously or since has ever been filled with. But there, in this prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
thank God that Jesus prayed that prayer. For in this prayer, during the anguish and during the torment that he was going through, it tells us there that it was so much torment, so much anguish, so much agony, that he, as he prayed, it was as if his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. We can't really grasp or understand what it was that Jesus was really going through at this moment as he prayed this prayer. But as he did so, he surrendered himself to the will of his heavenly Father. Not my will, but yours, your will be done. Last week in the family service in the morning, it was all about following the example of Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet. And when we consider our following the example of the Lord Jesus, this is a prayer that we need to pray, isn't it? As we surrender our lives to his will, to his plan, to his purpose, what it is that he wants for each one of us as individuals, we could take this prayer and surrender our hearts to our almighty God, our Father, and say, not my will, but yours be done. But what I want us to notice at first, when we consider this prayer, that as Jesus was praying this prayer, it was the prayer of a man. Prayer of a man. He took on flesh. He became a man. He lived like us. And he was praying this prayer as a man. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As a man, he knew what lay ahead of him. And therefore, as a man, you can't blame Jesus for praying. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But because of his willing obedience to his Father, and because of his love for you, and because of his love for me, he continued with those words, not my will, but yours be done. Now when we look at that verse, we could ask, what is or are the key thoughts or key words or key ideas in this verse? Is it prayer? Is it obedience? Is it the if or the maybe of the will of God? And each of them is of equal importance. But I suggest that one of the key words, an important word, is that word cup. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. So, what did Jesus mean when he was using the word cup? If you go to Matthew chapter 20 and 22, Jesus used the word to describe the experience that he was about to enter. And some of the disciples were, were looking for the place of honour. They were grasping to get the best seat, the best place, to, especially when they came into glory with Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to them as they're grasping for the place of honour. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So Jesus is using the word cup to describe exactly what it was that lay ahead of him. The things that were going to follow on from this very conversation that he was having with the disciples. It was used to signify what Christ was about to go through. The anguish, 
the torment, his suffering, and his dying. And yet, as we go into more detail concerning the cup that Jesus was about to, uh, to drink from, it, it had a far deeper meaning and significance than just that. We need to go to the Old Testament to discover a fuller meaning of the word cup. This cup that Jesus was about to take and to drink from. We go to Isaiah 51, 17 and to Jeremiah 25, 15. And in those two verses, this is what we read. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So these Old Testament verses give to us a picture of a cup that is filled to the brim, that is right to the top with the wine of the wrath of God. A cup that is full of his wrath. A cup that is full of his anger a cup that is filled of his displeasure that he rightly so as a holy god and as a just god and as a righteous god has towards disobedient fallen rebellious and sinful humanity and at some point in time the cup of the wrath of god needs to be poured out for sin cannot go by as unpunished. And over time, as the history of the world has passed on, we find the drops of the wrath of God have spilled over. We saw it at the fall. When Adam and Eve transgressed, we find that God came and he poured judgment upon them. We saw it at the flood, as men and women were just fallen into deep rebellion against God, so that God could only find one man called Noah. And there we find that God came, and he poured out his wrath upon the earth with the flood, and he destroyed everything that was upon it. We see it at Babel. We see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it at times over nations. At times we see it over cities. But yet, even though there were drops of the wrath of God being poured out upon the world in these different instances, the full fury of his wrath was yet to be revealed. And when we come to Gethsemane, when we come to this prayer of Jesus, he knows, he knows right in the very depths of his being what lies ahead of him. He is going to be taking hold of that cup. He's going to take the cup that is filled with the wrath of God. And in his act of obedience, in going to the cross, in his atoning sacrifice, as he dies on the cross, the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon the sin of the world. And Jesus is the one who's going to receive it. To use the cup analogy, Jesus was going to drink it. Jesus was going to feel the full brunt of it, the full force of the wrath of God. And it is no wonder 
that when the last drop was poured out upon him, that Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can we blame Jesus for praying that prayer? Father, if, if, if it is possible, remove, take this cup away from me. See, Jesus knew what the wrath of God would taste like. For he knew how angry God was with sin. He knew the fury that filled God's heart towards Satan and his host and towards all unrighteousness. He knew that by taking the cup and drinking from it, that all this wrath and fury would be poured out upon him. Yet he was willing to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there in the garden, as he's praying that prayer, he begins, as it were, to drink from the cup. And with each sip he took, he came closer and closer to that awful and dreadful moment of when he died on the cross. Imagine some of the sips that he took from the cup. Your close friend betraying you. Then an even closer friend denying you, not once and twice, but three times. And then after that, he was arrested. And then it says, as he began to drink from the cup, that they mocked him. And they beat him. And they whipped him. And they plucked the airs of his beard. But with all of that, there was still so much more to drink from this cup that he'd taken hold of. And it says that they blindfolded him. They taunted him. They blasphemed him. They took him before the council. And then they took him before, before Pilate. They were accusing him. And they were lying about him. And then they stirred the people up against him. And took him to Herod. And they vehemently accused him. And treated him with contempt. They mocked him further by dressing him in a robe of splendor. A purple cloak. And then together they cried out, away with him. And then continued with hatred in their voices, shouting, crucify him, crucify him, get rid of him. What a cup to be drinking from. What a cup. And all of this was in a short period of time. And yet, he continued to drink. He could so easily have pushed the cup away but he continued to drink the scripture tells us that they led him away and when they came to the place called Golgotha there they crucified him we know that crucifixion was the lowest most humiliating form of execution in the Roman Empire it was the lowest form of death for those considered to be the lowest of the low Yet Jesus was willing to drink this cup, to die this awful death. See, the crown of thorns had already been placed on his brow. He was already beaten and bruised. He was thrust upon the cross that would have been lying on the ground. The hammer was lifted, the nails held in place, and thumping down with a hammer to hold him, to nail him to the cross. Thump, thump. What a cup 
but what a cup to be drinking from. But then the cross would be lifted and they would have dropped it with force into the ground, forcing his body to jar into further pain and suffering. And it says they continued to mock the criminals behind him, beside him, scorning him, those passing by just gawping at him. And yet, at the same time, as Jesus was drinking that cup, something dramatic and almost incomprehensible was taking place. Something those around him didn't see happening. For as he drank from the cup, the sin of the world was placed upon Jesus. Every sin, past, present and future. Every sin of every man of every woman, of every boy, of every girl, placed upon him who knew no sin. And yet, here he is. As he drinks the cup, he becomes sin for us. And at that moment, the cup he had been sipping from is suddenly turned upside down. And the full thrust, the full flow of the wrath of God is poured out upon him. And he dies. Breathing out, as I've already said, with his last breath. My God. My God. Why? 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 Have you forsaken me? And scripture records for us that the moment was so awful that the earth shook. Darkness fell over the face of the world. And God had to turn away as he saw his son drinking from the cup bearing his wrath, bearing his punishment for the sin of the world. The punishment that should have been for you and the punishment that should have been for me. He took the cup. He took the cup. He could have allowed it to pass. He could have refused to have taken it and to have drunken from it, but he didn't. He took it and in taking it and in drinking it right down to the very last drop, he took the wrath of God and he took the punishment we deserved. He took our place. He took my place. He took your place. He took the cup that we deserved to drink. And the wonderful news is this, that in its place, he's given to us a cup, the cup of communion. It's no wonder the writer that the one hymn could say, he took my sin and my sorrow. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Oh, what a saviour that he died for me. From condemnation he hath made me free. He that believeth on the Son, saith he, hath everlasting life. And there's a song which to me sums it up so well thinking of Jesus taking that cup to see the King of heaven fall in anguish to his knees the light and hope of all the world now overwhelmed with grief what nameless horrors must he see to cry out in the garden oh take this cup away from me yet not my will but yours yet not my will but yours to know each friend will fall away 
and heaven's voice be still. From hell to for hell to have its vengeful day upon Golgotha's hill. No words describe the Saviour's plight to be by God forsaken, till wrath and love are satisfied, and every sin is paid, and every sin is paid. What took him to this wretched place? What kept him on that road? His love for Adam's cursed race, for every broken soul. No sin too slight to overlook, no crime too great to carry. All mingled in this poisoned cup. And yet, he drank it all. And yet, he drank it all. The Saviour drank it all. He took the cup. He took the cup. And he drank it to the very last drop because he loves you. Because he loved me. From the cup to the crown. From torment to triumph. From victim to victor. Thank God the story continues. And while the cup of the wrath of God was being poured out upon the dying, dying saviour. There was something else taking place simultaneously. See, while our sin, having been placed upon his shoulders, was being punished, there's more good news. Satan was getting a good hiding. Satan was getting a good hiding. He was well and truly thrashed. Death was about to be defeated and heaven's door was going to be flung open wide for all who are willing to believe and enter. The victim with the cup was going to become the victor with the crown. On the one hand, we see pain. We see sorrow. We see suffering. We see death and what at first seemed to be defeat and failure. But on the other hand, thanks be to God, and because of our Saviour's obedience and his willingness to say, not my will, but yours be done, we see the wrath of God being satisfied. And it led to a successful mission and victory. And we have a Saviour. We have a Saviour. Father, if you are willing, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the cup. Thank you for drinking from that cup. Thank you for having, allowing for the wrath of God to be poured out upon you in our place. And we thank you that the story continues. And as we come to next Sunday, we talk of the resurrection. It's important that I close this morning by reminding us what scripture says that we're all born in sin, shapen in iniquity. We all deserve to go to hell. And if this morning you're with us and you don't know Jesus as your saviour, and as you, Lord, can I remind you as we come to this Easter weekend 
that Jesus went to the cross because he loved you, because he loved me. Gave his life for you so that you could know redemption, forgiveness and eternal life. In the words of that song that I just mentioned, he took our sins and our sorrows. He made them his very own. And today you can know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. You can know what it is to know that your sin has been forgiven because he took the blame for them on your behalf. So let's just bow our heads in a moment, for a moment. As we just contemplate the things I've been sharing this morning of the suffering Saviour. He suffered because he loved you and me. He wants to give to us new life, hope for the future, and a home in heaven. If you've not committed your life to Jesus, ponder for a moment of those things I've said this morning, that what he went through for you, for you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just pray for each heart that is here this morning. Thank you for those of us that do know you. But perhaps we need to have an even better, deeper understanding of what it meant for you, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. But we say thank you that you did. For those that perhaps here this morning are perhaps living in a sense and that they've not yet fully committed or even given their lives to you, I pray that by your Spirit you would bring a work of grace about for your glory. Help us as we go through this week, as we come to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Resurrection morning, help us to spend time giving thanks from grateful hearts, not to just take things for granted, but just to realise you took that cup and drank from it because you loved us with an everlasting love. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know more, then please come and speak to me after. Amen.